Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Climate change has revealed new landscapes across the world. Drought has withered plants. Floods have scoured coastal cities. Snowpack has melted. But glittering among the disasters, the small new beauties of our changed world can be revealed. In a New Yorker feature, Elizabeth Colbert tours one, the re-emerging Glen Canyon in Utah, which had been drowned to form the reservoir known as Lake Powell. So today on Forum, we'll talk climate, adapting to a new landscape, and how we do, or more often don't, make choices about our struggling water infrastructure. That's all next on Forum, after this news. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Welcome to Forum. Lake Powell, a 190-mile-long reservoir that impounds the Colorado River, is massive. It can hold 25 million acre-feet of water, five times as much as Lake Shasta here in California. But as the Colorado River dwindles, the level of the reservoir has dropped 140 feet since 2000 and 50 feet in the last year. As the lake's surface recedes, leaving a bathtub-like ring marking its evaporation, Glen Canyon, a natural wonder which was partially flooded by the dam, has reemerged. Elizabeth Colbert, toured that canyon and wrote about the experience in a New Yorker feature hearkening back to some of John McPhee's similarly breathtaking writing about humans' attempts to control nature. And here to talk with us about Lake Powell, the climate, and our changing landscape, we have the Pulitzer Prize winner herself, Elizabeth Colbert. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. So tell us about Lake Powell and why you went to visit this reservoir. Well, I was very deeply influenced you know as a as a much younger person by works like Edward Abbey's Desert Solitaire and for all of your listeners out there who have read Desert Solitaire they will know uh, and for those who haven't I recommend it um, that the last chapter uh, or maybe it's even two chapters are are a trip that Abbey takes with a friend of his down 
the Colorado, the part of the Colorado Glen Canyon that's about to be dammed and flooded shortly before uh, that was no longer possible and it became Lake Powell. And it's a very, uh, he describes how spectacular it was. It was considered by many people to be more spectacular than the Grand Canyon. And so I've always had that sort of bug in my mind. Wow, wish I could see Glen Canyon. Huh. And so then as you saw that Lake Powell's, you know, level was getting lower and lower, did you start to think like, hey, maybe I'm actually going to get to see this beautiful canyon? Yeah, actually, I let uh, you know, like a lot of journalists, I'm always reading a lot of news from around the country. And um, I saw a, a little feature at, I think it was on a Utah TV station of some reporters who had gone out to actually see parts of, of Glen Canyon that are emerging now that the lake level is so low. So if you think about it, you know, Lake Powell is this huge reservoir. It's very weirdly shaped. It's um, I think in the piece I describe it as having the shape of a snake that swallowed a porcupine. It's really the Colorado and then all of these tributaries that feed into the Colorado and they all sort of swelled up when the water level was high. And now as the water level is dropping, um, the edges of that uh, landscape are now visible again. And so I immediately thought, well, you know, I, I want to see that too. I want to see what there is to be seen now. And I called up some folks. There's actually a group called the Glen Canyon Institute that's been working for, for 20 years to sort of liberate uh, the Glen Canyon, as it were. And they uh, very kindly offered to, you know, take me around. Oh, wow. So tell me about how the like why the water level is dropping i mean there's obviously the natural factors or semi natural factors of the drought but there's also about the position that this reservoir plays right in the western us's water system well the the water level in lake powell is, is dropping for a few reasons one of which as you say and sort of the primary one is you know, a terrible drought. This is a really uh, serious drought that's hit the American West. I'm sure I don't need to tell, you know, uh, listeners uh, out in California, um, but this is a biggie and people have looked at it in the context of historical droughts, which we can uh, recreate going back through tree ring records, actually going back roughly 1200 years. So in the last 1200 years, uh, this drought already, and we're not through with it yet, uh, ranks as the second worst in 1200 years. Um, so it's a very serious drought. So that's you know really reduced the flow of water into uh, Lake Powell and also Lake Mead, I should say, and into the Colorado. Um, meanwhile, you know, there are withdrawals from, from Lake Powell. Lake Powell feeds into Lake Mead and a lot of water that's used in the Southwest uh, for both agriculture and drinking water is, is sort of coming out of that system. Uh, and then there's also climate change layered on top. And that is just quite likely reducing the long term, just the average annual flow on the Colorado is, is, is dropping and is probably going to continue to drop. Uh, so you put all these things together and you get the kind of drops in the lake level that you alluded to at the top of the show. Yeah. So what did you, why is climate change reducing the flow? Is it because of reduced snowpack in the various places that feed the Colorado? Well, I think a bigger 
I mean, yes, there's there's reduced snowpack um, and there's increased evaporation. So one of the points that people make, it was made to me when I was you know, researching the article is you, you need sort of more precipitation to get the same amount of runoff because the soil is so dry uh, that it's absorbing a lot of the water. So that water never even hits the Colorado. So that's the setup, and you arrive now in Lake Powell slash Glen Canyon, and <laughs> you and and what do you see? Like, it was it what you hoped it would be? This you know one of the most beautiful places on earth. Well, when you first get to Lake Powell, you know you, we had to rent a boat, and there are a couple of marinas, and we got to the marina, and it was um, it's quite a scene. It's a fantastic scene. It's this um, you know looks like a lake, but a weird lake and the lake in the middle of the desert, you know, really, really, really dry landscape and all these people out on houseboats. It's kind of wild. Um, And the part of the lake that is sort of the central part of the lake is very, is very beautiful in a a weird sort of way. Um, But then we took sort of some of the side canyons uh, off the main stem of the Colorado and got to those landscapes, parts of the landscapes that have reemerged from Lake Powell. And there are amazing sites out there, um, you know, these fantastic little side canyons that are either have great sort of grotto-like formations. Uh, we went to a spot called Cathedral in the Desert, which is a sort of amazing amphitheater-like formation um with a with a waterfall there are wonderful waterfalls so it's it's really it is a quite a spectacular landscape and has it been i mean it's been sitting underwater for a very long time so how has that changed that you know uh, original natural landscape well it has um a lot of it is sort of buried what happens is that you know the colorado which the name of the Colorado was, um, you know, means colored red. It's, a, you know, should be a sort of a reddish river carrying a lot of sediment. And what happens is as the Colorado hits this slack water that's now Lake Powell, you know, because of the dynamics of that, the sediment drops out. So a lot of the um, canyons have been sort of buried under sediment. Some of them are also uh, re-emerging and because you'll get these you know sometimes these big pulses of water through that will wash a lot of that sediment away but oftentimes we were hiking through uh or on top of you know a lot of this reddish very red dusty uh clay uh sediment so who are the political players that sort of are surrounding this natural and man-made artifice of of Lake Powell who are sort of keeping it in this weird state where it's sort of fall like the the water level is falling but it's still sort of serving the same purpose as it did before within the region's water system well the the lake slash reservoir is managed and is a creation of the Bureau of Reclamation um so the the lake was created by a dam that went up in the, the Glen Canyon Dam, which is actually in Arizona, um, which went up in the early 60s, was completed in the early 60s. 
Um, and so the reservoir, as I say, is managed by the Bureau of Reclamation. Now it's, it's managed under a very, very complicated uh, you know, set of agreement, the Colorado River Compact and all sorts of you know, side compacts. Um, and there are many different facets. And one of the things that makes it so, so complicated, the situation is there are many different facets to this, to this management. And some of those are tied in with the way that the dam was created. So the dam was created. Um, one of the major reasons that the dam was created was to produce hydropower, mm-hmm. which the Bureau sells and that's a revenue source, an important revenue stream, and it then funds a lot of other projects. And we are reaching a point um, where we are getting close uh, to the point where water will not no longer be flowing, mm. you know, through those turbines, and that's a tremendous concern because. Uh, for all sorts of reasons, at that point, it becomes hard to get water out of the reservoir. You're not producing power. Um, there are all sorts of problems associated with that. So just recently, maybe a month or six weeks ago, the Bureau announced that it was going to release water from sort of upstream reservoirs to try to get raise the water level in Lake Power, at least keep it from dropping so fast because uh, of concerns about getting below what's called power pool. And so the Bureau basically sees its job to maintain the status quo. Well, the Bureau takes its, um, you know, its marching orders, they would say, and it's it's a complicated system. And I, I, I want to say that I, you know, am, am no expert uh, on water management in the West. I'm sure there are many uh, many, many experts on this because it's a lifetime's work to understand the system. <laughs> but, um, you know, the Bureau operates both Lake Powell and Lake Mead under these complicated guidelines, which were amended um, back in, uh, I've forgotten exactly the year, I think it was 2007 or 2009, owing to the drought. So we were operating under, you know, the Colorado River Compact and then we're operating now with a new set of rules on top of that. And those are now also, those are going to lapse and the drought is meanwhile, you know, deepening. Those are all going to have to be renegotiated. We're talking with Elizabeth Colbert, staff writer with The New Yorker, about her recent article, The Lost Canyon Under Lake Powell and a Changing Landscape Through Climate Change. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We'll be back with more Forum after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Welcome back to Forum. We're talking with Elizabeth Colbert, staff writer with The New Yorker, about her recent article, The Lost Canyon Under Lake Powell. She's also the author of Under a White Sky, The Nature of the Future, and won a Pulitzer Prize for her book, The Sixth Extinction. We want to hear from you, too. What is a landscape you know 
that's been altered because of climate change. Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or you can email your comments or questions about how the landscape's being altered by climate change to forum at kqed.org. Before the break, uh, Elizabeth Colbert, we were talking about sort of the decision-making around what to do with a reservoir like Lake Powell. And one of the reasons I'm interested in that is it just feels like with these big infrastructural systems, some regime of control gets put into place And then it becomes very, very difficult to revisit that and make a different set of choices. So is it possible to make a different choice about Lake Powell at this point to say, like, actually, maybe we just drain it or maybe we don't? Is it or is that sort of we're locked in to the current regime? Well, that that does get back to sort of the way that this dam was originally constructed. And if you had, you know, known at the time, um, well, you know, when you get to 2021, you're going to be at a point where you're going to be worried about uh, where the outlet pipes are, you know, whether the water will be able to flow out of the outlet pipes, um, which are called the the penstocks. Um, You would have designed it, you know, very differently. Um, But now you have this immense structure. I mean, you know, immense is, 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 is almost an understatement that's built a certain way. And that is unfortunately a very, very big commitment of, you know, concrete and um, that's very, very, no, no one really, even in sort of, there are as proposals out there, what what should we do, um, you know, to both deal with this really complicated situation um, in terms of, you know, providing water to the West and, deal with the problems of of Lake Powell in particular and they are very constrained as you point out by the the decisions that were made uh, going back to the 50s when this dam was designed Um, now there are sort of you know quote-unquote radical I don't know how radical they really are but proposals out there well we should basically drain Lake Powell just funnel all of the water into Lake Mead and we wouldn't pull down the dam because that, as I say, is considered, you know, virtually impossible. But hmm. we would dig new tunnels sort of around it. When the dam was constructed, you had to construct these diversion tunnels um, so that you could put up the dam. You know, you can't put up a dam in the middle of a raging river. Um, so they constructed these diversion tunnels. But then after they were done, they filled them with reinforced concrete. So it'd be very difficult to reopen those tunnels, but you could redig tunnels uh, or re-blast them, whatever you wow. would do. And you just let the Colorado basically uh, go around them. And then essentially it goes into what's called Marble Canyon and then through the Grand Canyon. And then eventually it, it, it backs up into Lake Mead. I think you're probably giving some of our listeners uh, flashbacks to a lot of the tunnel conversations we've had around our Delta uh, yeah. water system, yeah. which, yeah. you know, is is really one of those great hydraulic machines of, of the country uh, in terms of moving water around. And, you know, I, I wanted to talk about, you know, in climate change, we sometimes talk about stranded assets, usually around fossil fuels, right? Like there'll be stranded assets in coal mines and, and other places as... Um, 
the economy changes, we hope, to move away from fossil mm-hmm. fuels. This seems like an interesting example of like a stranded landscape where the climate has changed and now we've got this thing which was built for a different climate. Are there other places around the country where you've seen people try to make different kinds of decisions? I mean, Louisiana comes to mind for me just in terms of how much land is being lost there and people trying to figure out, like, what what do we do at this point? Yeah, I mean, I think all of these problems, as you suggest, are sort of profoundly um, related. And there's a huge, um, you know, political slash social slash economic um, force weighing in to preserve the status quo as much as possible. Let's just keep things going as they were going as long as we possibly can. And I think one of the, you know, interesting things about our time, and I use the word interesting, you know, advisedly, um, is that we are pushing up against the limits, some of those limits. And our political system is not very good at dealing with that, you know, so we will continue, um, as it were, there are all these huge sunk costs, but they're not just, you know, they're not just financial, they're also people's lives and people's livelihoods. So I I don't say this, I don't say this cavalierly. Um, But when you've changed the entire climate, uh, you know, there's a certain point where there's a sort of a breaking point. And I would say we haven't run up against that yet in a really major way um, that's made us really, you know, just confront the fact that we cannot keep going the way we are, but we are bumping up against it. And I think one place you see that a lot is obviously in California. Yeah. I want to bring in Hugh from Oakland into our conversation. Hugh, welcome to the show. Hugh, can you hear me? Hi, can you hear me? Yeah, I can. Go ahead. Okay. So um, I have uh, water skied in Lake Powell when the lake was full. Um, I first want to piggyback on top of the description to just how beautiful it is. It's uh, right below Arches National Park. Uh, It's right um, after uh, Canyonlands um, and, and... the recreational activity around the lake when it's full is is quite busy, like the houseboats that were mentioned, water skiing through canyons. Um, and so I have uh, two questions. Uh, one is, how has the recreational activities um, impacted the local politics and realization of impact of, on global warming? Are some of the recreational businesses uh, in a traditionally libertarian state, uh, positively impacting, or is it, it just changing the fight over water? And my, my second question is, this is still up above uh, Phoenix and um, up above uh, the other lakes downstream towards Las Vegas. So how is it impacting the downstream uh, access uh, to water and the politics around that? Man, Hugh, those are some excellent (laughs) questions, and you will love this article, let me tell you. (laughs) Um, Elizabeth Colbert, let's um, answer the one first about what I'm going to call stranded experiences. You know, like you had this 
landscape that allowed people to do certain human things that they loved in the previous climate regime. And now we have a new one in which that's getting more difficult. How has that affected the local politics uh, around tourism on Lake Powell and what should happen to the reservoir? Well, that's a that's a really interesting question. And it's a very and it's a somewhat complicated question. I mean, the first part of it is it's it's simply gotten harder. You know, there are a lot of the marinas are closed. They're just sort of inaccessible as the water level drops. I when I first arrived at Lake Powell, I went to this sort of boat launch where you can put your own boat in the water that the National Park Service owns. And someone was had just pulled their boat, very fancy boat out of the water and it had gotten all scratched up because the the, the boat ramp really no longer reaches to the water. So you have to sort of, there's a sort of jury rigged dirt road. Um, and so, you know, a lot of things have just gotten more difficult. Um, but you know, a whole generation of people, if you're, you know, uh, in my age and your 50s or 60s or whatever, you've sort of grown up, Lake Powell was always there, you know, and anyone younger. Um, and so, you know, there's a whole lot of people who use Lake Powell. It's actually one of the most popular, you know, recreation sites in the country, millions of visitors in a, in a good year every summer, mostly in the summer. And, you know, so there's a huge, when we talk about you know, people not wanting to change, one of the things they don't want to change is there's this huge recreation industry that does bring a fair amount of money in. Um, so that's another uh, force sort of tugging at the Bureau to try to maintain Lake Powell the way it is right now, well, where you say, can take a big houseboat out on it. Yeah. I mean, in your feature, you know, it's not just the money. I mean, I think you pose really kind of ethical or at least a, a social question, which is, how should we manage this sort of beautiful resource? Way more people go to Lake Powell than would go to, you know, a drained Glen Canyon or that went there before. So you kind of pose this question of like, should we manage this for sort of maximum access and enjoyment of of people like you and others who you know want to go to Lake Powell? Or should we be managing this differently? Yeah, and I think that one of the interesting, you know, those are really interesting questions, um, and we could sit here debating them, you know, for for many hours. Um, but one of the interesting points, and I think one of the points of the piece, is some of those decisions are being taken from us. We don't like that. We're not very good at acknowledging. Well, this is no longer really entirely up to us. <laughs> but that is the case at Lake Powell now. Yeah. Hugh, before we let you go, um, if Lake Powell goes away, is there anything in particular that you would miss? Well, um, I appreciate the holistic approach. I mean, we're getting back to what the canyon was before the the reservoir. uh, And at the same time, there's a need beyond the recreation for, you know, drinking water. It's pretty basic to life. But but I have to say that uh, the experience was a uh, wonderful, basic, uh, simplistic visual experience of, you know, water skiing through a canyon. Um, so I, I would I would miss that because because it, it was truly memorable. Uh, on the other hand, I, I think the more important thing is, and I'm still curious about whether sure. any of these businesses are realizing the the global warming 
you know, as a ma- on the macro scale will help them on the micro scale or whether they're just fighting over water as well as the downstream impacts on, on the cities. Great. But thank and let you. Me, yeah. great, great conversation. Thank you, Hugh. Uh, Elizabeth, I wanted to ask you that, too. I mean, you know, the, the big demand poll here, right, is the, the big cities of the desert southwest, right? Well, there's two big demand polls. I mean, a lot of the water, and I think this is a point that, you know, once again is going to be fought over very, um, you know, vigorously, let's put it that way. A lot of the a lot of the water is going to agriculture in the desert, um, which is very water intensive, as you can imagine. And, you know, I passed, you know, spots in, in Utah where they were obviously had some water as opposed to the, you know, parts where they didn't. And, uh, you know, there's alfalfa growing. A lot of it goes to grow alfalfa. It's animal feed. And a lot of people uh, would say, well, that some of that's just some, some slash all uh, that's, a, you know, is going to have to, um, be curtailed. We just can't do that anymore um, because we have, you know, Las Vegas, we have Tucson, we have Phoenix, they need water and um, they are going to should slash, I mean, once again, we can have all these arguments, take priority over, um, you know, feed for cows. Um, so, you know, we're going to have really big fights, but to to answer part of Hugh's question, um, so right now, Lake Powell and Lake Mead are operated so that they're kept sort of at parity. If one is a third full, Lake Powell is about a third full now. Lake Mead is also about a third full. And there, there was just very, very recently, people may have read about it, um, it's called a tier one shortage was declared for Lake Mead and by the Bureau. And uh, that, that kicked in. What kicked in after that were some restrictions and some farmers have, are, are going to, or already have lost their water allotment, mainly, um, I believe, in Arizona. And this gets into, once again, since we're speaking California, a really interesting interstate politics. California um, is considered sort of the elephant in the room that really, you know, grabbed up a lot of water before the Colorado River Compact. In fact, the Colorado River Compact was sort of um, forged because pe- because the other states were pissed that Colorado was taking all the water. Um, so these tier one shortages have mainly hit Arizona, but eventually if things get bad enough, they will also hit California. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's I almost have like a joke about like every water feature about California, you know, whether it's 5000 words or 40,000 words <laughs> at the end, there's like a paragraph where it's like, well, eventually we're going to have to tear up the almond orchards in the southern central valley. And then maybe we have a chance. You know, I mean, it's like, yeah. there is a yeah. way in which given our current system, cities will pay more for water than farmers. And if we really allow that economic functioning, they would not get water allotments. Um but, uh, of course, as you've alluded to several times in this conversation, water law, water rights are just – they're one of those uh, uh, dizzyingly complex pieces of, uh, uh, of the world. Um, yes. But I think, you know, just vis-a-vis almond um, farmers, you know, almond also being a water-intensive, you know, crop, uh, I think people are uh, going to be – are probably already starting to say, you know – what do we have to do differently? Because, um, you know, 
this gets back a little bit to the point we were talking about before, you know, yes, for, for, for years, people have been predicting things and everyone sat there and said, okay, you know, wake me when it's time, you know, wake me when it's over. And we're getting to that point where, you know, the, the proverbial rubber is hitting the road. Mm-hmm. When, when listener asks, you know, we're talking about 20th century solutions to the West water problems. Are there 21st century solutions that we should be considering? Like uh, aside from the dams, water restrictions, pulling out certain agricultural products, what else do you see? Well, water is one of those, you know, things. It's not really uh, fungible. How's that? I don't know that there's a high tech, you know, replacement for water, though. Lord knows that would be um, good. You know, much more water smart farming techniques would much more water smart. I mean, a lot of, you know, like Las Vegas is um, literally, you know, will pay you, uh, you know, to tear up your lawn. Um, you know, we are going to have to, and I, you know, don't live in the West. I'm speaking to you from the East Coast where we've actually had ridiculous amounts of rain. So we're having sort of the exact opposite seesaw problem here. Um, but we are we are going to have to prepare for uh, a, a drier future. There's just a really, I don't think any doubt about that. And, you know, the West, this way that the... Western water use grew up was with, you know, some fantasy, as many people have, you know, written great books about this. Um, Another book that I really recommend is Cadillac uh, Desert, which I'm sure many of your listeners have read, Um, that there was going to always be, you know, somehow miraculous, you know, rain follows the plow. I mean, just all sorts of nonsense. And now, you know, once again, we're hitting that, we're sort of hitting that brick wall. We're talking with Elizabeth Colbert, staff writer with The New Yorker, about her recent article, The Lost Canyon Under Lake Powell, and what we should do with these landscapes that have been stranded by changes to the climate. What's a landscape you know that's been altered because of global warming? Or what's an experience that you used to be able to have that you're going to miss in our new changed climate? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum after the break. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Elizabeth Colbert, New Yorker staff writer about water in the West and her recent feature in The New Yorker, The Lost Canyon Under Lake Powell. Let's add Daniel from Berkeley into our conversation. Welcome. Hi. Can you hear me all right? Sure can. Go ahead. Okay. Well, I'm going to act as a counterpoint to the last guest and say that Lake Powell is not beautiful and it's tremendously harmful. Um. Thanks to a very adventurous friend, I've also been to the cathedral in the desert in the mid-2000s when the level was previous low, uh, previously very low, um, and it's 
uh, just an indescribably beautiful feature that we destroyed on purpose, or at least flooded on purpose. Um, I later, uh, with my now wife, hiked into uh, Rainbow Bridge uh, via the overland route from the Navajo Reservation. Um, in both cases, the, the biggest disappointment of those hikes is reaching the water surface and realizing what was lost down beneath. We flooded a second Grand Canyon in sandstone. And these days, people flock there to burn fossil fuels on the surface of this lake. I mean, that's what recreation area means in the U.S. It means internal combustion burning area. We have four-wheel drive recreation areas, and we have boat recreation areas. But there's other issues. That lake evaporates a million acre feet every year off the surface. And this is out of Cadillac Desert, so I'm not an expert any more than anyone who's read that book. Um, But it's also actively destroying the Grand Canyon, our most revered national park downstream, um, by no longer depositing silt on the beaches and basically uh, destroying the native fish because of the warmer, uh, sorry, the colder water temperature. Um, Furthermore, unlike a lot of our other reservoirs, there's no major pipelines or cities connected to this thing. The dam is basically there to regulate water delivery between the upper basin and the lower basin to satisfy a hundred year old agreement that's based on an absurdly wrong idea of how much water is available. And the power that's generated by it is replaceable right there through wind and solar. It's one of the windiest and sunniest places on earth. So my take on this is if you love Glen Canyon, and very few of us are able to love it truly because it's underwater, if you love the Grand Canyon, and if you love Lake Powell, which could have a million more acre feet per year, then decommissioning Glen Canyon right now is is the thing to do. And as far as the tourism, if you call something a national park, people show up in droves. All you have to do is recommission this thing or redesignate it from a national recreation area to a national park. There will be tourists. They won't be showing up in speedboats and houseboats and jet skis. Obviously, I'm a, you can tell I'm a Berkeley <laughs> radical, so that doesn't bother me. Um, but there will still be tourists. Yeah, Daniel, thank you so much for the um, succinct argument against what, uh, what some people call Lake Fowl. Um, it's Elizabeth, do you want to re- call succinct in my life? I appreciate it. <laughs> Elizabeth Colbert, do you want to address any of those points in particular? Well, I mean, Daniel made some, you know, key, key points and the, you know, rationale for, you know, why, why does Lake Powell even exist, which is sort of one of the questions raised in, in, in the piece is, is a really, a really complicated one. Now, one, you know, reason, and once again, this, you know, gets back to the complicated water politics in the Colorado River compact uh, is, uh, you know, uh, one of the sort of theories, and once again, I wasn't around when this was debated, but, you know, it gets back to California, you know, California is in the lower basin, California, if we let this water, um, you know, flow through unimpeded, California is just going to use it, and we're not going to have it anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, So the upper basin and the lower basin, that kind of weird division that Daniel alluded to, you know, probably has to has to go, and the whole system has to be uh, regarded holistically. But so much, once again, there's so much of a sort of status quo bias um, that that just renegotiating that is going to be very difficult. Um, now, as I said before, you know, people are going to start to come to the table. I believe the meetings are already happening because this interim agreement, which which was arrived at in 2007, I did check online, um, is going to lapse and we're going to need a new agreement. And, you know, a lot of people 
say people in the water management business, a lot of them say, we're going to have to look at a lot of new thinking because this isn't working. Um, but a lot of the people at the table are also, you know, water managers from districts that, you know, where you, you know, quite possibly still have people. And this is a whole other story. You know, once again, Lake, Lake Powell is, is in Utah where the governor recently said, you know, our problem, we need to pray for rain. Um, now, you know, I have nothing against praying for rain, but I don't think that's really a solution. Um, and where you still have a lot of people claiming this is just a cyclical thing and, you know, climate change isn't real. It's really, really hard to have rational discussions uh, in that context. Yeah, it feels also like, you know, for people, water managers who for their entire careers have been operating under a particular regime tend to see things as staying within the sort of boundaries of, of that regime. And so what they deem realistic is not what, you know, a caller like Daniel would deem realistic, which is about dealing with the long-term realities of climate change and what's likely to be um, much less water in this part of the... Country. Yeah, and now the one thing I would say, you know, in, in their defense is, you know, neither Daniel nor I has to go to the meeting where we tell, you know, um, all these people that their livelihoods, you know, are, mm -hmm. are ending. <laughs> um, right. That's a tough conversation to have. Yeah. I mean, it's tough, though, because not making choices is, in fact, still making choices, right? I mean, like, that's one of the themes of your recent work is, like, if we don't do anything, things still happen because the world is forcing these decisions on us because we're burning fossil fuels in other places, which are then causing further changes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that one of the, you know, weirdnesses of our time, maybe the major weirdness of our time is what we consider normal. You know, we consider normal um, you know, digging up a lot of uh, plant matter that was, you know, grew in the Carboniferous uh, 300 million years ago, you know, putting it in a, in a, you know, big uh, oven, burning, you know, burning it up, sending the CO2 back into the atmosphere and using that to, you know, turn on uh, our, you know, to watch TikTok videos or whatever. That, that's perfectly, you know, that's normal. Now, in a, from a, the grand scheme of life on Earth, that is super, super weird um, and, you know, causing changes that are going to affect everything on planet Earth and not just people, really literally every creature on planet Earth and every landscape on planet Earth. Um, but we're so sort of stuck in our own little, you know, what you could say called tunnel vision of what's normal uh, that we have a very hard time getting out of that. Yeah, it is sort of stunning when the author of The Sixth Extinction is like, yeah, I'm not sure we can fix this Lake Powell problem. And you're like, well, we have some other things that are even <laughs> bigger we need to do. Yeah, yeah, well, I think that Lake Powell, I mean, I think it is, you know, a very, very interesting um, example of why, you know, we're, we're so dug in that even something that arguably is, soluble with some, you know, some, some very different thinking, but not, we're not asking, you know, us to basically give up, um, you know, modern life. Um, then you go up in scale from that and you're like, wow, how are we ever going to deal with these things? Exactly. Um, let's bring in Shannon from San Francisco. Hi, I have been spending the past 
four plus decades um, visiting the same cabin in the Sierras, and I've really noticed in the past few years a change in the, the wildlife that I see. Far fewer gray squirrels, a lot more ground squirrels, um, no stellar's jays, which used to be plentiful in our yard, and uh, tons more ravens. And I don't know if it's just the competition, um, those other species are just out competing, or if there's something related to, to the change in the climate. And like our, we have a little spring fed lake across the street that had barely had any water in it this year. and. Um, was dry at the end of last year too and i i imagine that's going to have a lot of impacts as well that's my comment yeah no thank you for that shannon we have a couple others from uh listeners as well um Jeff is going to miss skiing. The ski season in the West, California and Oregon, both has been getting shorter and shorter each year due to warmer seasons. Another listener writes, this is less about the landscape and more about the tempo of the seasons. I have always loved the fall, a time when it warms up in the Bay Area, particularly San Francisco, but now I dread it because it's peak wildfire season. Living in the North Bay, I feel like I can't leave or travel during that time because I need to protect my home from wildfires. Tell me about it. Um, It is... (laughs) <laughs> it's one of those things that every time you see like a warm day in the late summer, early fall here in California, it's you have mixed feelings. Um, let's bring in uh, Brad from Hayward, California. Oh, I actually think we just lost Brad. <laughs> let's go to John in Palo Alto. Hi, John. Um, I wanted to uh, just comment on or ask about the feasibility of letting the price of water, in particular for agriculture, float so that uh, water-intensive crops in the desert may become economically unfeasible and therefore mm-hmm. will cease to exist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, Elizabeth Colbert? I mean, I think people may not understand that water pricing doesn't work um, in the way that the pricing of many other commodities does. Yeah, I I think that that is, um, you know, a a really interesting, um, you know, question. Can we sort of use more, you know, market-based mechanisms, as it were, that would, you know, sort out which agricultural uses are worthwhile, you know, viable and, 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 and which are not. And once again, I have to um, punt a little bit. I am by no means an expert on how water gets, um, gets distributed. And as, as, as you alluded to, Alexis, you know, the, the water rights um, are a fantastically complicated uh, topic, but definitely, you know, all of that you know, should be rethought. I guess one of the themes of this conversation is, is will they be? Yeah. Brad is back. Brad from Hayward. Welcome to the show. Okay. Can you hear me now? Yes, we can. All right. Great. I spent the last year traveling the state, making a documentary about California's water. And you're talking about how the climate change has changed our landscape. Well, those of you familiar with false river above Oakley will know that there is now a diversion dam there blocking seawater from entering the Clifton Court Forebay via Old River. And in Yet fact, another, Old River right. is only, it's only three feet above mean sea level. So if we have a three-foot rise in the ocean, 
the entire California aqueduct is going to be filled with salt water. Mm. And what is, what are people trying to do about that, Brad? Aside from just this diversion dam as a as a stopgap measure. Well, the pipeline under the delta to bring water directly from the Sacramento River, the Feather River, rather, down into Clifton Court so that they bypass the delta entirely so that there's no saltwater intrusion there. That's the plan. Um, I know that a lot of people in the delta are very upset about that because that's going to dry up the delta for fresh water, and then they'll have saltwater intrusion that won't be reversible. Yeah. Thank you for that, Brad. Elizabeth Colbert, are there plans to just have have a new way of thinking about our water systems (laughs) like a new it feels like we almost need just like a paradigm shift in the way that we bargain these things and the infrastructure we build i mean is someone trying to lay that groundwork like the deep changes that need to happen in the decision making processes for all of these things because i'm sure as brad indicates we could go up and down the state and across the whole west and find that there's a uh different groupings of problems, but that are all this sort of the, the climate system is forcing harder and harder decisions on the pre-existing systems. Yeah. And I mean, the the subject of my most recent book, which is, you know, called Under White Sky, anyway, for reasons that we can or cannot get into, um, you know, really talks about a lot of these interventions, you know, laid on top of previous interventions. And one of the sort of treadmills, that we're on is that we can't uh, either we can't we literally physically can't because we've you know built things a certain way or because we you know refuse to do so and it's very difficult to start from scratch it's very difficult to say well you know San Francisco shouldn't be here LA shouldn't be here it should be somewhere else you know that's a really um, you can say that's really what we should do but you know pretty evidently that's not what we're going to do until you know, something gets wiped off the face of the earth. Um, so we're in this the, on this treadmill of trying to overlay, you know, one kind of control on top of uh, the previous kind of control to maintain some simulacrum of the of the status quo. And that is that's often has a Rube, you know Rube Goldberg esque quality. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's only going to get more and more common and complicated. Yeah. You know, we have uh, several different listeners that have asked about two kind of big techno fixes. One is desalination, and the other would be some massive pipeline to bring water from, you know, east to west. Are either of those things, should those be lumped together or are they equally likely? Well, I think, you know, desalination desalinization, which is already, you know, something that we use and is increasing on the use is is increasing, you know, all around the world. I, once again, don't want to claim to be an expert, but when we're talking about, you know, really large scale use that that might be an answer to sort of a local problem. It's, it's, it's energy, you know, it takes a lot of energy. um, And it's not going to solve, you know, your agricultural uh, issues. I don't think anyone envisions that as a possibility, though, you know, I could be wrong about that. Yeah. Uh, and then in terms of a, of a massive pipeline, um, you know, from the, from the East to the West, um, that's a really interesting idea as we get more and more rain, uh, you know, up here in the Northeast. Um, but I don't know the practicalities of that e- either. There's, you know, this thing called the Rocky mountains in the middle. Um, so, you know, you're talking about, you know, just 
these phenomenally uh, expensive, complicated, energy intensive um, projects. Yeah. Projects. Yeah. Um, a listener, Robert, uh, wants to know what gives you hope for the future. What gives me hope for the future? Well, you know, sort of um, paradoxically, I suppose, and that was sort of one of the points of the piece, I guess, on Glen Canyon uh, was, um, you know, uh, Terry Tempest Williams has a book, the title of which is, is, is Finding Beauty, I think I'm getting it right, Finding Beauty in a Broken World. And Glen Canyon is sort of finding beauty in a broken world, the, the upside of down. There, there are beautiful uh, the world is fantastically interesting and fantastically beautiful. And Glen Canyon is reemerging as a result of, you know, some pretty bad stuff. Um, but it's still very beautiful. And I feel very fortunate uh, to have been there. So I don't know that that gives me hope exactly, but I will, I will call it solace. <laughs> um, listener Allegra writes, I was a 10-year-old student in San Francisco in 1963 and wrote to Barry Goldwater pleading with him to stop the Glen Canyon Dam project and save Glen Canyon. I received a form letter in response to my letter telling me that the hydroelectric and jobs issues were more important than the beauty and historical value of Glen Canyon itself. Both David Brower of the Sierra Club and Barry Goldwater admitted before they died that Glen Canyon was the biggest mistake they'd made in their lives. There's plenty of recreational value in the natural landscape sans a fake lake. We've been talking with Elizabeth Colbert, staff writer with The New Yorker, about her recent article, The Lost Canyon Under Lake Powell. She's also the author of Under a White Sky, The Nature of the Future, and won a Pulitzer Prize for her book, The Sixth Extinction. Thanks so much for joining us, Elizabeth. Thanks for having me. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.